0: Thank you. Hello, soul searchers and writers. I'm Grant Faulkner, executive director of National Novel Writing Month, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, I'm excited today because our featured guests are the writers who put together one of my favorite books on writing, Letters to a Writer of Color, which uh, just recently came out within the last year. And, you know, I read a review of it when it first came out, and then I essentially bumped into it randomly at my public library soon afterwards, and that reminded me to read it. So thank God for public libraries, and thank God for book (laughs) discovery in real life, not just on the... The internet, and we're now actually uh, reading it as a staff at NaNoWriMo. and then we did a book giveaway of the book during NaNoWriMo to help spread the word. So yeah, I'm super excited about it.
1: That's a really cool synchronicity, Grant. I I, I do want to hear what you love about it.
0: Yeah, well, one thing I found interesting was how the book offers a type of counterpoint or expansion to Rainer Maria Rilke's famous book on writing advice, Letters to a Young Poet, and that was a collection of ten letters written by Rilke to a young Cadet at a military academy who was writing to him and asking him for advice, and and then the cadet uh, published the letters after Rilke's death, and it's it, you know that that was in the 1920s, and so it's it's always been one of my favorite books on writing, and it's often quoted, and I, I thought I'd start off by reading one of the famous quotes from it, and then we can kind of use that as a discussion uh, point to leap off from. So Rilke says, "Be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves." like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now perhaps you will then gradually without noticing it live along some distant day into the answer. And I think uh, letters to a writer of color really opened up that advice of loving and living the questions because it opened up the many different kinds of questions that a writer of color must have Um, and explored the questions from so many different angles.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, this book is very much a book of questions and questions that are different from many Rilke would have imagined, I'm sure. Uh, And I'm going to take a second to describe the book for listeners since I was lucky enough to get a digital copy in preparation for our interview. Uh, But the book features 17 pieces by authors of color from all over the world, reflecting on aspects of craft and the writing life. As you said, Grant, I love how many different topics are covered in this anthology and what an amazing array of authors are included in it. Uh, National book award finalist, Ingrid Rojas Contreras wrote on the bodily changes of writing about trauma. Miriam Gurba wrote on writing as a form of activism and resistance. Booker prize finalist, Madeline Thien probed how structure can be an extension of perception. So many great writers in this collection. Also one fascinating takeaway from the book for me was how the anthology offers so many insights into what it means to be othered as a writer As a person, and our guests today are going to speak to that in the interview. Uh, And yet there are commonalities among all the writers as well, things that any writer would recognize as truth. And so that's what makes something a takeaway in the first place, I think, this idea that, um, you know, a writer is mirroring their readers' experiences.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I found it very inspiring because of the the general lessons on authenticity and, you know, every author struggles with how to be truthful in their words and stories, so I related to that on a on a very personal level, but I also felt like I was reading the book a little bit as if I was looking into a window because that lesson or the quest for authenticity for a writer of color is, is you know, obviously uh, so different than mine. Um and as you said, Brooke, many of the questions, you know, are shared, but many of the questions are very different according to the writer's experience. Um You know, I know, I know, for instance, that I'm not going to feel the same type of rejection or incomprehension or misunderstanding as a writer of color. So letters to a writer of color defines the problem much differently than the problem and the challenges.
1: Yeah. And even though this is a book for writers, I love how it's also a book for readers. And uh, in the introduction, they write, by broadening and complicating the notion of good writing, and by demonstrating its cultural and racial determinants, the essays ask readers to be inclusive, not only in what they read, but how they read. Uh, And I think this is really interesting, because it's something I don't often hear people talk about, which is how they read, or adjusting how they read. Um, And it's an important question, too, because of the legacy of literature, right? Uh, And arts in general tends to be very elitist, tends to be through a very white and Western lens. Uh, and some argue that this idea of elitism, you know, as a lens through which to see literature is is good, because it's like setting a high bar. But there's also this perception that literature is only one thing, right? The canon, for instance, is just uh, so full of white Writers. Uh, And very recently, The Times ran an interview with the legendary literary agent Andrew Wiley. um, And the interviewer asked him, What should a writer's goals be? To which Wiley replied, Just on the quality of the work, the kind of ineffable beauty of something extremely well expressed. I believe this, but I think the problem is that it has this kind of like, you know, something that is ineffably beautiful or something that is well expressed, of course, can be through the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's like, and that's a little bit the problem of this idea, you know, if publishing is so white and historically has been, and you know, there's a way in which we are meant to see, you know, how things should be written. I, I think there's, this is kind of what these writers that we interviewed today are unpacking uh, in this anthology, which is to say, you know, things are changing and where should the emphasis be? And I'm really pleased that, you know, more and more authors of color are being published and elevated, um, and in part because we do really need to reset what is culturally important and what deserves to be published? Um, so that's an important conversation again that we get to talk about a little bit today with our co-authors Timur and Deepa. Uh, but how about you, Grant? What are your thoughts on this question? You know about how you read.
0: I think it's a really interesting one, and I think like we should all uh, probe that because. I think we generally approach books with a kind of preset expectation of what it is or what it should be. And sometimes that leads to frustration and even misreading. And I remember when I read Teju Cole's Open City, I loved it for the way it taught me to read differently. You know, I kept expecting it to include more of a tangible conflict and more narrative escalation through through that conflict, because that's how most stories are shaped, most stories that I read, more or less. But Open City starts with the man walking and thinking and observing and having random encounters, and that's kind of how the whole novel proceeds. It's not that it's undramatic, you know, quite the opposite, really, but it's just that it captures the drama of meandering, I suppose, you know, a certain kind of aimlessness, uh, which is its joy. That's, that's the joy I took away from, from reading it and its meaning. And A similar thing happened when I read uh, Rachel Cusk's trilogy. Um, in the first novel, I expected the same kind of conflict and escalation. I remember getting impatient when it didn't happen, or what's the, when's this going to you know when's this going to move? And uh, but then I realized this novel is going to be about her main character literally sitting on a plane and listening to a man's story and other situations like that. And the main character's conflict turns out to be very nuanced and subtle. And like Teju Cole's novel, the drama happens in the meandering because of the meandering, and it's just a different type of story. So I have to read differently and think about how I read.
1: Yeah, it's so true, and and we get to explore many types of stories and entry points to storytelling in just a moment when we talk with Deepa Anapara and Timur Sumro, uh, the editors of Letters to a Writer of Color.
0: Welcome back, everybody. I'm super excited to introduce our featured guests today, the editors and writers behind Letters to a Writer of Color. Deepa Anapara grew up in Kerala, southern India, and worked as a journalist in cities including Mumbai and Delhi. Her debut novel, Gin Patrol on the Purple Line, was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, The Washington Post, Time, and NPR. He won the Edgar Award for Best Novel, was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction, and was shortlisted for the JCB Prize for Indian Literature. It's been translated into more than 20 languages. Temur Sumro was born in Lahore, Pakistan. He has worked as a corporate solicitor in London and Milan, an agricultural estate manager in rural Pakistan, and a publicist for a luxury fashion brand in London. His short fiction has been published in The New Yorker, and he is the author of the novel Other Names for Love. Welcome, Tamur and Deepa. Thank you.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having us.
0: Absolutely. You know, I read that your experiences in your MFA program that you both attended led you to or planted the seeds of collaboration on this book. And the title of the book expands on Rainer Maria Rilke's classic book of advice to writers, Letters to a Young Poet. And I'm curious about these connections, uh, both your experience in the MFA program and then the framing of your collection with Rilke's book, which you know, was a type of MFA program when it came out way back in the 1920s. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit.
2: I can talk about how we met on the MA program here in the UK. Um, And we were one of the few students of color on the program. And, you know, it was really good for me to be able to meet Timor because uh, the program itself had such a white, Western, very American aesthetic, I would say, Uh, you know, the kind of prose that we were told to read was... Carverisk or something like Hemingway, and both writers I admire. but there are different ways of writing and uh, different ways of storytelling. that's practiced, say in my own culture. I'm from India and our storytelling traditions are very much based on oral storytelling traditions, for instance. And, you know, our communities are large stories in a lot of American fiction can be quite individualistic in many ways. It can be focused on the individual and on the, on a single character's motivation, for instance, whereas, you know, where I come from your life, there's, there's so many connections in your life and even your neighbors may have an influence on, you know, how your your own narrative progresses. So I didn't quite understand how to incorporate my own life experiences, my own cultural traditions in my writing. And I used to have these discussions with Timur about, you know, how do we write about our culture? Do we translate it for an audience? You know, how do we handle, negotiate those questions of power around questions of translation? Are we, you know, we are so often expected to make our culture, make our race um, present it in a digestible way for a white Western audience. And so do we do that because we want to be published or, you know, how do we approach these questions? So none of these, I would say they were, These were not part of the MA program. These were not discussed at all. And I think they're not discussed in most of the programs around the world. And um, the book is really, you know, an answer to many of the questions that we had. Do we translate our works? How do we translate our language? how do you translate slang, for instance? So really technical, precise questions like that for which we didn't have answers. We try to approach writers with more experience than ours and ask them to discuss how they negotiated those questions, which is really what the book tries to do. Timo, do you want to add to that?
3: Yeah, you know, it was so valuable having Deepa um, as a companion and as my community on the Masters. And I think what we were really starting to interrogate As Deepa was saying, was this question of what is good fiction? What are we being taught and how are we being taught it? And what are the biases within those methodologies that are not being acknowledged? And that the two of us felt that, you know, because of our position as outsiders really to that system, that we could examine and Um, I think as we started, you know, and as Deepa said, these questions of translation, of, you know, what do we have to explain, of where is the centre, who is the audience, who is being prioritised, whose point of view is important. And, you know, it, it really struck us as well how lucky we were to have each other, but that, you know, there are going to be writers, writing students who don't have that kind of community and who, as a result, believe these lessons that only a certain kind of story is good. Only a certain kind of story is valuable or deserves to be st- told. There's, you know, a very narrow way of telling a story. All of these kinds of lessons, you know, those those kinds of tropes which, have, which are being challenged, like show, don't tell, and all of those that are being challenged, but that still have a kind of stronghold, I think, in the pedagogy. And so with this book, we wanted to create that sense of community, for writers who might not find it IRL, you know, organically or in person.
1: Well, to more, I'm going to continue on with you because you write uh, in your essay, Origin Stories, about con artists. Uh, you say what interests you is the desire for a disguise, its art and effects. So what's the kinship you feel with con artists? And could you speak to the idea that one of the purposes of fiction is to capture what you call the shiftiness of self?
3: Right, you know, it was just I had really ended up reflecting so much on my identity as a performance and as a kind of a performance that was analogous to to art. That I was sort of um, telling a story about who I was, and or stories were being told about who I was, and how did these stories connect to the stories that the the fictions that I wanted to write? And it was. It was a valuable analogy for me because those stories of identity that I was telling about myself or that were being told about me were inflected with these, you know, across these axes of power, of race, of class. And so it really required me to think about the ways in which my fiction and my fiction making also incorporated those kinds of questions. And I think, it, in a way, what I also wanted to speak to really was this, you know, there's a kind of um, expectation or a pressure that I think, it seems to me, applies unevenly. And it seems to me applies particularly to marginalized writers, to writers of color, to queer writers, to women, that we are, in a way, we're, we're kind of denied the power to imagine worlds that are on the face of them entirely different from our own, that we're expected to tell our own stories. You know, that as a queer Pakistani writer, I'm expected to tell the queer Pakistani story. And so a way of kind of interrogating my identity and interrogating it as a con was a way to say that actually expecting me to tell my story, to tell the queer Pakistani story, that there is um, a sort of a a fundamental misunderstanding within that, because we're all contrived, as contrived, really, as our fictions are. So, you know, why shouldn't we have those freedoms within our fictions?
0: Well, it's interesting, because um, language is a mask as well. And, And Deepa, you write in your essay, how English is your third or fourth language. And you write, to quote from the book, my grandmother coaxed me into learning what was once the colonizer's tongue because she believed wealth and power spoke and understood only English. But in a language still alien to me, I sound dishonest, or it's not a lack of vocabulary, but a lack of craft or a lack of time. All day, I write down the words of others. And, and you also write about how your, your disuse of your mother tongue actually causes you to lose that language. So in, I I began to imagine you as a writer without a language or a writer with multiple languages, perhaps. And, you know, I I think about my own, you know, I'm, I grew up knowing English and that was the language I wrote in. And, you know, as writers, we trust in the language to guide us to truth and essentially mirror our truth. So I was wondering if you could speak to that, that challenge.
2: It is quite difficult for me even today to speak in English, I would say, and um, I'm much more comfortable writing in the language because it was something that, uh, you know, I started doing as a child, Uh, but um, we didn't really speak English at home or or at school. And it was a language that came to me only when I was an adult in many ways. So there is an element of discomfort in the language, even to this day for me. And I do think about, you know, this question of losing my mother tongue. It's a language I only speak with to my parents right now. And um, I no longer can read fluently in my mother tongue. So there is a sense of loss as well. And, you know, I'm keenly aware of that loss. And I do feel that absence in my life. But in many ways, I don't think there was a different path for someone like me in a country like India, which was colonized by the British you know, English was always the language that you had to learn uh, right from colonial times. You had to know English to get a job as a clerk. So that was why English was taught to Indians in the first instance, because the British needed people to fill up forms Um, And Amitabha Amitabha Kumar, the writer, has a really good sentence um, in his essay on authenticity, where he says that it was a language in which we did our homework. You know, it was not the language for magic, and it's not the language in which we dreamt, for instance. So I think there is that sort of differential between how I would have written if I'd been writing in my mother tongue and how I write now that I'm writing in English. I'm constantly aware of that loss, and when I read works in Indian languages that have been translated into English, I feel that they have a sense of authenticity that, you know, my writing quite lacks. So I feel that I've falls somewhere between these cracks, not quite Indian and, you know, I'm not quite English. So in many ways I do feel I don't have a language. You're right. On my CV, for instance, I say I speak four languages, which is true, but um, I don't know if I feel quite at home in any one of them. And that's part of, I guess, our, you know, um, it's something that was handed down to me because of a colonial history. I would say that when I when I write in English, I do feel quite, it's much more natural for me than writing in my mother tongue um, because it's been something that I've been doing for so many years. But there is still that question of, you know, um, of translation, of not quite getting the word right, which um, Shalu Goh touches on in her essay on translation. She says that she really struggles with translating, say, curse words in Chinese into English because it can't quite capture the rhythm or you know of that language, that particular flavor and texture. So those kind of struggles continue.
3: There is also this um, sort of sense of betrayal. I think I remember, Deepa, I don't know if you remember, someone had asked us a question in one of our events about... You know, the fact that we had chosen to write this book in English and the fact that we wrote, as you said, in the colonizers' language, who were we writing to and who were we centering? Yeah. And, you know, it didn't even then and now, it doesn't feel like there's an easy answer to it. I do feel this, this sense some sense of betrayal, really. That where am I directing this story, and why am I directing my story westwards? And you know that that fear of pandering, and and you know, as you were saying, deepa the, the, these questions of translation is, you know, whom am I translating for, and how does power determine those choices? You know, those those are I my my urdu is extremely poor. So it's not that I really, that I have that choice, but, you know, that sort of theoretical choice for me in a way, um, it feels very relevant. And it does, I think these, you know, you were talking about Amitava's piece on authenticity, as well as Shalu's piece on translation. I think it, these questions of authenticity and these questions of power, I think, particularly arise in that choice.
2: I should add that uh, for many Indian writers writing in English, this is a question that uh, makes them quite angry because it's a language that they've grown up speaking. And, you know, it is their mother tongue as well. And for many Indians, they do speak in English right from the time of their birth. It was just that this was not the case for me. And, you know, I grew up in a completely different household And I think um, unlike most Indian writers writing in English, you know, who tend to be from typically from middle class households and from a different class, they have uh, they study abroad and I didn't have any of those privileges. So I come from a completely different background. And I think so I've wrestled with this question more.
1: It's a big one, clearly. Um, I I would like to turn to one of the authors that you feature, Kiese Lehman, just because he's one of my favorites. And we were lucky enough to have him as a guest uh, on this show a while back. And his essay in your book is both tragic and it turns funny and biting. Uh, It's ironic because he's striving to tell his story as a real Black writer, in quotes, yet his Black editor keeps telling him the way a real Black writer should write the story and the way he should write it if he wants readers. Uh, And so it's a tug of war between them. And then Kiese basically concludes in the essay, you look down and you keep Writing, revising, reading, reckoning, working—because that's what real black writers do. And so it's an assertion at the end that real black writers do what we all hope real writers do, which is to use the tools of writing and uh, to tell their truth. So, could you talk about how these essays spoke to this commonality of the nature of being a writer? Because that's what Grant and I uh, most noticed. You know, that it's like they're very individual experiences, but. At the end of the day, there's a lot of truth and commonality, I think, no matter who you are.
3: I remember when we were putting this book together, I remember discussing it at a dinner party and I remember someone saying to me, but wait, you know, you have a Chinese writer and you have a Singaporean writer and you have an Indian writer and, you know, you have a Black American writer and and what links you all together that you should contain all of your essays under this, you know, in, in this single space? And it both felt like a really irritating and offensive question, but it also felt in some ways relevant. And it was something that Deepa and I were thinking of too, you know, because on the one hand, we were complaining about being put into a single box. And on the other hand, we, you know, within this anthology, we gathered together these writers who are very different. But I, I think that something that we felt and that we found was that there are ways in which the MFA program, the publishing industry and readers flatten the experiences of, can flatten the experiences of writers of color from who are so extraordinarily diverse and expect a single story. And here, what was so critical for us to do, I think was both to acknowledge the kinds of challenges that we might face Experience that are the same, but also how different our experiences were, and in a way to present an m f you know to think of this book as an m f a in which we give permission to write such diverse stories to come from as writers from such different places and not to think that because we don't correspond to a certain you know our, our narratives don't correspond to us to an expected narrative that we can't be writers or that our stories can't be told.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I also wanted to say that I think for me, what was really moving in all the essays is that, uh, you know, writing was an act of resilience. It was an act of resistance for everybody. So, you know, no matter what our circumstances, um, no matter where we were geographically, it was something that offered us comfort and, you know, it was a way of understanding the world and which is why you have to keep doing that. And I think he speaks to that beautifully because he's being, you know, this editor is telling him that he's not a real black writer, as you said, Brooke. And so his response is to, is to write. And I think, often we feel quite powerless in the face of everything that's happening around us. And it's particularly true of writers who are marginalized and, uh, you know, b- because of our race or our class or community and writing can be that only source of strength in many ways, which is why it becomes so important. And I hope what the book does is to give writers permission to write in whichever way they want, which I feel is what's lacking perhaps right now.
0: that's a good segue into my next question and Kiyose's experience as well, being told what lane to be in to be successful. And Timur, you write about how your fiction was most successful when you stayed in your lane. And so I was wondering, can can each of you speak to this? What does it mean to stay in your lane and why is that more likely tied to success, meaning commercial success or career success, quite different than writerly success, I think. And and yeah, so what, what does staying in your lane mean and why should a writer be wary of this?
3: I mean, I I felt, and of course, it's so difficult to distinguish, you know, within this sort of like, within my subjective experience, you know, where am I picking signals up from? You know, where are they coming from? But I felt very much that I was expected to tell a certain story and a story, a Pakistani story a queer Pakistani story, but a story also about misogyny, a story about violence, a story about homophobia, to tell the story that a reader, a Western reader, would expect to hear about Pakistan. And my perception was also that there would be rewards for telling that kind of story. The kinds of books that I saw celebrated were the kinds of books that told these stories. And so, and, you know, it it sort of ties into these questions of identity too, that thinking about, you know, Thinking about the story that I tell about myself, this is what I was trying to do in my essay, thinking about the story that I told about myself, where was that coming from? Was that also designed to please or to satisfy an audience? Was that designed to give um, anyone interacting with me something that they would expect of myself? And I think that it's important, it's critical to kind of resist because i mean partly because those stories are so boring you know it's so boring to be to hear again the same single story about a place for example something like pakistan you know a place with 200 million people to be hearing the same story you know about misogyny about violence um you know about religious extremism not that those things don't exist there but there are so many other stories and there are so many other kinds of lives and i resist the idea that we have to be political but uh, in this but this did feel kind of like a political act to say that actually you know people have all sorts of lives and there this this effect of flattening is to kind of deny Uh, humanity really you know and to expect a certain story to say you can only tell this kind of story and and I think I what I really wanted to resist most of all was also my own expectations my own temptations to tell that single story for whatever reward I I assume that might be there because that seemed both a disservice to my kind of art practice but also to my politics
2: I just want to add to that. And, you know, Temur, you said, where are we picking up those signals from? And I just want to talk about my own experience, which is that my first novel, Jin Patrol on the Purple Line, which is set in an impoverished neighborhood in India. You know, nobody had any questions about what authority I had to write that particular story. I was concerned that, you know, I was writing about a community I was not part of. In many ways, I was an outsider. um, And it was based on the work that I had done as a journalist. And I was still concerned about how I was portraying this community and whether, you know, I would present them in a stereotypical or cliched way. But nobody in the Western world asked me any questions about the work that I'd done, or, you know, it was just seen as natural that an Indian would write about poverty. No questions were asked. Whereas my second novel is a a historical novel. It's about uh, an adventure and exploration in Tibet in the mid-19th century. And I would say that, you know, the response to editors, at least here in the UK, was like, why Tibet? Why her? And, you know, why do you get to write about it? And so it was, you know, all sorts of questions which didn't come up when I was writing about poverty came up because I was writing a travel, you know, narrative, an adventure narrative set in the mid 19th century. Because I don't know why, maybe because, you know, I am a woman and, uh, I, um, have not been on an adventure i guess in the mid 19th century i don't know if that was the reason but i could clearly see the differences in which they approached my first novel vis-a-vis the, you know to the um, how they saw my second novel uh, which is which is quite different and many editors even said something like this is i couldn't tell that this person who wrote jen petrol had written this novel and for me that was such a huge shocked that people could still say things like that, you know, in this day and age. Yeah. Why couldn't, why can't I write a novel, a historical novel, which is quite different?
3: Similarly, you know, when I had queried agents initially, I had sent out stories. You know, I, I, um, I am Pakistani. I was born in Pakistan, lived a few years in Pakistan, and then lived around the Middle East, lived in London, moved around, have family in Pakistan, go back. But, you know, my identity is really, it's, it's, it is shifty. And, uh, so, I, the first, you know, set of stories I queried agents with did not have a Pakistani connection. And I got very lukewarm responses. And then when I queried agents again with Pakistani stories, with stories set in Pakistan, I had, you know, the responses were, were totally different. And, you know, of course, in, in that kind of experience, it's so difficult to tell, you know, where the earlier story is bad, where the later story is better. But it did make me wonder is there a certain story that is expected? Me. Am I supposed to write about a certain subject? And something I felt with my novel as well was the way that it was so often described in coverage, you know, as something kind of akin to autofiction, as something very, you know, that corresponded very closely to my, my, my own background, that that seemed to be a really kind of critical, critical thread, you know, within the coverage. And that, you know, that also made me think about these questions of power, you know, is, is there a limit to how much we are allowed to invent and and what does that mean this kind of constraint on the imagination why are we constrained from imagining what kind of threat to power is there from us imagining beyond our own experiences. And, you know, the truth is, of course, that my experience I, for Pakistanis, Pakistanis could have criticized me for writing the no- a novel set in Pakistan and said, well, you know, how much time have you spent here? Do you, re- do you really know? Are you really Pakistani enough to write this novel? But, you know, as as, as Deepa was saying with her experience, that, you know, everyone felt that that I, I could legitimately tell the story. In fact, that the story must be mine. And I think it's, you know, it's wondering what's going on in that inference.
1: Absolutely. It's so many more things that you're contending with, you know, I, I'm hearing you both say in, in terms of the judgments placed on you as well. So so thank you for sharing all of those stories. And we're going to close with this question. Um, I don't know if either of you saw that Lit Hub published this amazing piece about Toni Morrison in October called uh, Why Toni Morrison Left Publishing. Uh, but in it, the writer who the writers, multiple writers who wrote the piece, cite a few lines from a keynote that she gave in the early 80s. And she said, editors are now judged by the profitability of what they acquire rather than by what they acquire or the way they acquire it. Acceptance of the giveness of the marketplace keeps us in ignorance. And I thought that you two might have an interesting take on this, given your position both as authors and editors in this collection, Uh, and because what Toni Morrison said way back then is still decidedly true. But simultaneously, we are in a kind of, I think anyway, you you can tell me if you agree or disagree, uh, a kind of beautiful moment in book publishing because there are so many more voices of color being elevated. Uh, And so I wondered if each of you might weigh in on this um, and, and if there are any stories to tell from your publishing journey, please, please share.
3: I think that you're absolutely right. I think that there is, there are so many um writers of color being published. I think that what I would love to see more of is different stories and different kinds of stories because I think that I still see a lot of homogeneity in the kinds of stories that are being published and the kinds of stories that are being told. And I think that these demands of the market and the commercial demands of the market, if anything, are greater now than they were before. And, you know, I I think, you know, you would, you know, asking about our own publishing experiences. I mean, there were, there were, you know, I I love my editors. um, But, you know, I remember, for example, when my, the copy for my UK edition was being put together and In the copy, it said, you know, it described the story and it said, set against the backdrop of a troubled country, something like this. And actually, my book is not political at all. And it's really a, you know, it's about a father and a son. But it felt to me that actually this kind of framing is still critical for an audience to find a story from somewhere else relevant that the story should be telling them the politics the history of a troubled country you know you know and then and then i i remember too in my my new york times review of my book i remember that the reviewer had spent most of the review discussing my education and why is it that pakistani the pakistani authors that we read are you know educated ivy league educated things like this and you know that's that's a very legitimate question, I think. But was it really a relevant question? From it's it's not something that I have any control over, and um, it's not really something that's that's really relevant to my book. It seemed, but you know, I see still see so many books being put out, and and actually it's it does disturb me or upset me. I see so many big books being put out by writers of color that tell a story that is over familiar that tell a single story and then that is heralded as a great truth. And that is just like that. That's kind of both boring and unhelpful, I think.
2: Deepa, do you have anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I would say that there has to be a change in who, you know, in reviewing for instance, in publicity and promotion of books and, um, I think the problem is that, uh, you know, like Timo said um, about his own review, many of these reviews are written by people who may not have any sort of experience about what it is like in, you know, a country outside the Western world. And they might promote a book uh, which presents a sort of trauma narrative by a writer of color and often shows the U.S., for instance, as a savior. They might say that that book is, you know, a great truth about that particular country, which they don't really know about. Um, So I do think um, there has to be a change in who gets to decide, uh, you know, which books are promoted and which books are publicized. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm really grateful to Random House and our editor at uh, Random House for the amount of, you know, she was really enthusiastic about this particular book and really supported us.
3: Now I see like a common practice that I see is like, oh, it's a book by a a Black writer. We'll get a Black person to review it and in some on the one hand I think this sort of starts to move some somewhere towards this you know this this to answer that question of what Deepa was talking about which is that to think about who the gatekeepers are but at the same time it ends up being so reductive too because it's sort of suggesting that only you know a brown person could understand my book you know or a You know, only another queer person could understand my book. And I think some, you know, I hope something that we see from, you know, your experience with this collection is that actually. It speaks very broadly and our stories speak very broadly. And actually what ends up being critical is the way that you approach a text, whatever your background is, that you approach a text with a kind of humility, with a kind of curiosity and an openness, I think, to challenging your own beliefs and to allowing that text, uh, you know, to showing that text a kind of respect and allowing that text to maybe exert a kind of power over you regardless of whether the writer is a woman a queer person a person of color
0: well thank you so much Timur and Deepa I've learned a lot from reading the book and I look forward to reflecting on everything you said today as well so thank you for talking with us
1: well thank you for having us
0: thank you both so much
1: congratulations on this book as well
0: we'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break Well, Brooke, sometimes our trends feel more like coverage of the publishing industry, and therefore the trends are more like unpacking issues within the industry, you know, tensions that have always been there, and that's that's what we're covering this week in light of today's guests and their wonderful book. Two recent pieces, both mentioned earlier in the show, came out that highlight how publishing wrestles with elitism. And one was an interview with Andrew Wiley in The Times, and one was a story uh, on Toni Morrison in Lithub. Hub. And, and you mentioned to me, Brooke, that you saw some overlap in these pieces, so I want to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, I guess you kind of have to be knowing what you're looking for to see that overlap in part because um, of my experience in publishing. Wiley is a book agent. Morrison, of course, was a much celebrated author. But before that, she was an acquiring editor. Uh, And Wiley's interview, (laughs) which I mentioned earlier, it's incredibly smug and arrogant, like so much so it's almost hard to read. So people should read it just because that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Morrison, on the other hand, you know, was in the trenches in an supremely white industry uh, fighting for Black voices to be heard. But both of them are, were, uh, of the mindset that what mattered was expression. And this got me thinking to this question of how, right? Um, because how we acquire, how we publish, how we read is very interesting. It's also very subjective. And in this context, Andrew Wiley is basically saying that it's his job to find the geniuses, right? These singular and unique voices. Whereas Morrison was saying in the quotes peppered throughout the LitHub piece that her job was to elevate, voices that needed to be read. And I just thought how interesting that is that, you know, there are different orientations to the job with the same driving passion, but each of them with very different lenses and each of them impacting which voices get to be heard. Uh, So that's it. You know, it speaks to how important these jobs are, agents and editors' jobs, in terms of, you know, choosing who gets to be published and then, by extension, what we as a populace consume.
0: I'd like to take uh, your observations uh, just a little bit deeper by sharing an example from each of the stories. Um, Andrew Wiley represents Salman Rushdie, Saul Bellow, Atala Covino, Nabaka, Sally Rooney, you know, titans of literature, really. And he says in the interview that these people's voices are irreplicable. He's not worried about AI because they're not susceptible to being copied in the way for him that, you know, Stephen King or Daniel Steele definitely are. And I found this interesting and kind of funny, since I imagine the more Saul Bello AI gets fed, the better job it will do imitating his voice. Or that's what I've read. Uh, but this is a man who is defending a way of publishing that is maybe right now in this moment being scrutinized in ways it has been for years. And and Morrison in the 1970s published a manuscript from Black Panther Huey Newton and wrote an internal report that LitHub highlights. She said, "Delete some of the truly weak essays. Edit all. And the Panthers and their prose should be given the benefit of editing And thus be shown in the best light. So you have one person saying that what matters is genius and singularity of voice, and another saying that what matters is the story and the message, which may need strong editing for the sake of being well received.
1: Right. And I guess that's exactly what I'm saying, right? It's like uh, it showcases two different mentalities. Uh, and the mentality that some authors deserve to be heard because they are special and uniquely talented, contrasted by the idea that authors deserve to be championed because they have something important to say or an important message to share. Um, at the end of the day, of course, there's room for both of these opinions <laughs> under the big tent of book publishing, uh, and both of these realities, perhaps I should say. But it also shows the tension you know, of a category of people who are holding up a particular brand of elitism, a pu- Um, you know, as opposed to a group that maybe are wanting access and inroads into publishing, you know, and saying that there are many more voices out here that deserve to be elevated.
0: Yeah, and that's such an important way to look at this question of who gets published and why and why a book like Letters to a Writer of Color is so important in this moment and why it really is a modern day Letters to a Young Poet. You know, Rilke was writing in a time when the only kind of person who had the luxury of being a young poet in the Western world was a white man. And, and today there are many different kinds of people who are writing and publishing. So having such a seminal collection like this with such powerful voices is, is, is really a gift, not just to writers of color, but to all writers and readers.
1: So true, Grant. And a good plug for everyone to go out and get this book and to keep reading across all genres and voices. I love the idea about thinking about how you read and that translates to how you listen, how you consume. Uh, and since I'm an avid audiobook listener i know that i take in people's words you know in different kinds of ways the reading experience the listening experiences uh and on that note we want to thank all of you our listeners always thank you so much we hope you had a good thanksgiving week last week and on to new content this week uh and the following week and the following week so thanks everybody